to Living Writers. My name is T. Hetzel, and today on the program, I'm so happy, so happy to have Prita Samarasan here um, by virtue of Skype uh, and the wonders of technology. Prita is joining us uh, from France uh, to talk about her debut novel, Evening is the Whole Day. Uh, Prita, welcome. Thanks, T. Hi. 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 It's so great to speak with you. Um, thanks for thanks for being on Living Writers, Brita. Thanks. It's a great. It's a thrill. It's a great honor. <laughs> oh, well, um, just to kick us off here, I'll read uh, your your bio in the back of your book. Brita uh, Samarasan was born and raised in Malaysia, but moved to the United States during high school. She recently received her MFA from the University of Michigan, where an early version of this book received the Hopwood Novel Award. She also won the Asian American Writers Workshop Short Story Award. She currently lives in France um, and is speaking to coming to us from France. <laughs> Which is quite exciting, because I don't usually do these over the phone, Prita. So. <laughs> um, yeah, I should, I should say that um, I, I know Prita from Michigan, so this is why we're, we're attempting the, the long-distance phone, <laughs> phone conversation on live radio. <laughs> uh, how are you doing? It's, it's about 9.30, is it, over there with you, Prita? Uh, it's 10.30, actually. We're six hours six hours ahead of you. Oh, geez. Okay. That's good. It's not my math. I was doing the England time, but yeah. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Oh, so 1030. So hopefully you're having a cup of tea or, or, or I am actually having a cup of tea and herbal tea of herbal tea. Okay. So, (laughs) well, now we can picture you. Um, and so Frida, you've actually, um, this last fall, you were on book tour with, with this, this is your first, this is your first novel, Evening is the Whole Day. Yes. And and how was how was the book tour? How how'd that go? Oh, I mean it was really I mean, of course many parts of it were really, really exciting. I mean I've been working on this I had been working on the book for so long and just to see it out there finally, um and to realize that people were buying it and reading it, um was incredibly exciting. Um and speaking and highly of it too. Right, What's like, that? and speaking highly of it, uh, rec- yeah, yeah, for the, yeah. I think yeah, all the reviews have been fairly positive, so that was exciting. I mean, you know, I think many writers would share this feeling of we're not necessarily all extroverts, and we don't necessarily <laughs> like you know meeting a whole lot of strangers in a short space of time and, and talking to them. So some of it was intimidating, but I think on the whole, it was a really positive experience, and it was fun to kind of you know see my book go out into the world and, and get a readership. Yes. And how long? You mentioned that it, it was nice to see the book out in the world because it had it had taken a long time to make. How long have you been, how long has this been a project of yours? 
Yeah, it's kind of a complicated answer because I I started working on it in December of 1999, but at that time I was in graduate school in a different field. I was getting a PhD in musicology, and so I started this kind of as a side project, and then I would work on it in the summer breaks and a little bit, you know, in, in Christmas breaks and, and think whenever I had time off. But it really wasn't. I wasn't focusing on it. Um, I wasn't able to focus on it until uh, so at some point. I started, I, I was taking, I guess I took a couple of creative writing classes at the University of Rochester, and um, then I started doing summer workshops, and at one of those summer workshops, I had a teacher who encouraged me to um, go and get my MFA, because I was, I was, you know, really serious about it, and in many ways more passionate about it than, than my PhD, so, <laughs> so he I, said that, who, you know, he encouraged me in that direction, so at that point, that was the summer of 2003, I applied to MFA programs, and I came to Michigan in 2004, by then, you know, I'd sort of been working on it for five years, but not, not really, so I came in 2004 to Ann Arbor, and then I finished it while I was in the MFA program. Um, so I graduated in 2006, and that summer I, I finished the, the draft of the novel. Yes, I remember you were into, I think, uh, that in 2006, like heavy revisions, like going through yes. a number, yeah. like you had a, a weekly deadline for that. Um, so yeah. so who was the person who encouraged you in 2003 that, that made the, the difference? Oh, so it was John Dalton. His name's John Dalton, and he he had uh, at that time was just publishing a novel of his own. It's called Heaven Lake, and it's set in China. And uh, we, I was at the Iowa Summer Writing Festival, um, and that's where I met him. And I was in his workshop with a bunch of other people and um, submitted, I guess, a chapter of my novel at the time. Yeah. And had you always been writing as as a young girl? Had you been writing? And also, I know piano is important to you, and obviously, you you went in the musicology direction yeah. first. <laughs> yeah, I had always been writing, and really that was the thing that I always loved most. I was writing, you know, as a young child. I think a lot of writers will say the same thing, you know, kind of writing stuff that, um, you know, looking back, obviously a lot of it was terrible. Even in my teens, it was terrible. But um, I was also, yeah, I was, I was um, playing piano, and when I got to college, for some reason I didn't take any creative writing classes. I double majored in music and history, and that's kind of how I ended up going to graduate school in musicology, because it just was like, it was a logical progression, and I didn't think too much about it, but I very quickly realized that what I really wanted to do was write fiction. And, and, And why was it? Why do you think that you didn't take the classes when you were in undergrad? Like what, you know, like was it something about was writing an art and separate from like a perceived academic I mean, really, like so much of life is random you know you realize <laughs> that you make these huge choices and a lot a lot of times it's just like little random things that you don't even think about that much at the time but i think it was well i i took one music class in my freshman first semester of my freshman year and i really liked it um and you know i had been because i had been doing a lot of music at home as well and so I I really liked it, and I decided to keep taking more music classes, and it just kind of, and I didn't have a whole lot of, it was the same, I had taken music and history, and I didn't have a whole lot of room after that for other classes, and and also, I think, I think to tell you the truth, I was a little bit wary of of taking um, creative writing classes as an undergrad, I wasn't, like I was, I had friends who who were taking them, and I wasn't too crazy about the workshop format at the time, and just like right. it didn't seem, yeah, it didn't seem. I, I wasn't interested enough in the in the in the format of the classes or in the 
Yeah. That makes sense, Prita. And then so instead you ended up when you, when you were in Rochester going for this PhD and that was in um was it in gypsy music like the study of gypsy music in France? In, uh, it actually like was. France? I mean, it was just a PhD program in musicology, which is music history. Mm. And so, you know, just it was basically um western music history. And uh, when I went in, I actually had a completely different I thought I had a completely different focus and I thought I was going to look at the early twin the early 20th century um Mm -hmm. and then and then i guess uh i i the the whole my dissertation i was working on a dissertation the very very early stages of a dissertation when i left and the dissertation was on gypsy music festivals in france and that was some an interest that that developed pretty late um and I decided that I wanted so in musicology there are two branches: there's a historical branch and the kind of anthropological branch that call, that's called ethno ethnomusicology. And I decided that I wanted to move more into that branch and and write this dissertation. And then after a year or so of doing it, I decided I didn't really want to write the dissertation <laughs> after all. But is that is there a, is that was it just a coincidence that that you moved to France? Then it's not to um, kind of follow up on more of the gypsy music festivals. Oh no, not at no. all. Um, I definitely won't be going back to that dissertation, but it's oh. not a complete coincidence. At the time that I was doing the research, I, I traveled around France for f- four months, and I'd been that was not my first trip to France. I'd been here a few times before that, so it's a country that I've definitely had an attraction to for a long time. Um, and so when I I did research here for four months, and I was um, you know planning to come back, like I was supposed to get a grant to write the dissertation and then come back and live here for a year or two. Um, and when I decided that I wasn't going to write the dissertation, that was the one part of it that I really regretted, that I wasn't going to be able to come back to France oh, and live right. here. So, it wasn't necessarily um, being called do a doctor. Anyway and just, you know, now I'm not, I'm not doing any research for the dissertation, but I'm just doing the part of it that I, <laughs> that I secretly wanted most. <laughs> That's the way, Peter. You keep, <laughs> keep going. That's exactly the right thing. Um, maybe part of it will surface in, in stories or, or a future novel, maybe, yeah, right? Maybe. You never Christ- know. I mean, you know, you can never rule anything out. So. That's, right. That's right. Grist for the mill. All our, all our lives, right? Everything in them. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and so, and then I was looking, I went to your website, um, yeah. which, which is your name, uh, PritaSamarasan.com. Right. Yeah. And that's so correct. and so people can check that out if they'd like. And you even have um, a couple of tour dates coming up. It's your like almost the, the international leg, the non-U.S. leg of your yeah. your book yeah. tour. Um, w- w- Want to tell us a little bit about where you're going in case someone out there in streaming radio land is <laughs> going to one <laughs> sure. of those locales. Actually, the website needs to be needs. It, it's desperately needs to be updated. I haven't had time to update it in a couple of months already now. But yeah, so. So um, I'm going to the Edinburgh Book Festival in August. That's the next thing that's coming up. And then in October, um, I'm doing a couple of events here in Europe. There's one I'm going to be reading at the American Library in Paris um, in early October. And then I'm going to be doing a very short um, event in Newcastle. There's a South Asian Literature Festival in Newcastle that I'm going to be at. And then after that, I'm going basically back home. I'm going to Asia. And I'm going to a writers' festival in in Bali, in Indonesia, for for a few days, and then I'm going to be in Malaysia, um, and do a bunch of readings and promotional events there, and at the same time, of course, visit with my family. <laughs> oh, that sounds wonderful. That's and yeah. so, and so so you say I'm going back home, and when when was the last 
time that you were you were living living there, Prita? For because uh, I know you came here for high school. I was living there full time. Of course, it was ages ago. I, I left Malaysia in 1992 and came to the U.S. to do my last two years of high school at uh, at boarding school. Um, and so I haven't lived there since 1992. But I do go back, especially now that I can afford it. I go back at least once a year, and I tend and I stay at least once a month. And ideally, at some point, I'd like to divide my time more evenly between Malaysia and elsewhere, but at the moment it's just, you know, um, a month or so in Malaysia every year. Yeah. Oh, well, that's not, that doesn't sound half bad. <laughs> <laughs> what, what brought you to the States for the, the last two years of high school? Well, um, so I had, I guess I'd finished what, the equivalent of my O-level, so it's, you know, Malaysia being a British colony follows, basically this still uh, follows uh, British educational structure. So I finished my O-levels, and that means that you have two more years of high school education before you can go to college or university. And at that point, a lot of people um, who have been in regular government schools um, go, you know, either either will go abroad or will go into private schools or so so basically, you know, you, you get three streams of people there's a, a few who will stay at home in the in the government school system and many especially when i was living there in the early 90s a lot of people were going abroad um or um so you going just, to private colleges at home but why and, the states uh, rather than than england for example or <laughs> yeah so 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 going back to i mean a lot of it is political too actually like at the time and and, and still it was not just at the time um minorities it's very very difficult for for uh indians and chinese in malaysia to to get into um their field of study their choice of field of study in local universities so if you could afford it if you could get away if you could leave you you left and um, my parents couldn't afford to pay for me to go abroad so i applied uh, to a bunch of different places you know for financial aid and i ended up getting a scholarship to this um high school in new mexico that's actually part of a movement called the united world colleges and they have at the, now i think they have like um, 12 or 13 schools around the world, and they take in, I mean, the the idea is that they bring in um, students from, you know, each, each school has students from like 80 different countries, and they bring them wow. in for two years. They're all between 16 and 18 years old, um, and kind of what an, them what an amazing together, experience. <laughs> study <That's>... together and <laughs> play together in the, with the idea that that this is a step towards world peace <laughs> yes no <laughs> and on that, that note I put it that way, it so, no it's no it's sort true of ridiculous though. idealistic but it, you know it, it actually was it was an amazing two years and the um i won a scholarship to one of these schools to the one in new mexico and at that time i didn't know anything about it i just what i was going to go anywhere that gave me money and they gave me money and i went there and it turned out to be an amazing experience that Oh. Changed my life. <laughs> oh, Prita, and you're another step towards world peace. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with Prita Samarasan and her debut novel, Evening is the Whole Day. I was 21 years when I wrote this song. 22 now, but I won't be for long Time hurries on And the leaves that are green turn to brown And they 
Welcome back. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, uh, Prita Samarasan with her novel, Evening is the Whole Day. Um, I'd like to say thanks to DJ Electronica for bringing us into Living Writers um, with his great um, sets, and also to um, Alex Sergey for engineering and, and doing the great work with uh, <laughs> playing our, old, our oldest album, I think, back in the collection. No, I'm sure it's not the oldest, but it's... It's a Simon and Garfunkel one that we we managed to find. Brita, were you laughing at all because of the musical choice? It's, oh no, I love it. <laughs> it doesn't really scream Malaysia, but if if people had have you know the people who've read the the novel might know why. <laughs> Do you want to tell us? Do you? <laughs> Do I want to tell you about the choice to include so much Simon and Garfunkel in the book? Or? Yes, why not? Yeah, I, I, I just, I well, <laughs> I really love their music a lot. I'm a huge fan, and I think that um, you know the, those the, the book is set mostly during nineteen the, during one year, nineteen seventy nine to nineteen eighty, in Malaysia, and that was a time when their music was still really popular. A lot of people around the age of um, well, the, the character who listens to the music, her name is Uma, she's 18 years old, and a lot of people in that age group at that time um, were still listening to Simon and Garfunkel. So I thought it fit the, it fit the setting, it fit the time period, and I just, I just really love their music. So And, the, and there's, <laughs> there's weighty um, lyrics to go along with it, too, with the sound of silence and, and yeah. sort of building yeah. tension as you're doing. Um, yeah, and I thought the, the kind of the the sense of yearning and loneliness thematically fit the novel as well. So, <laughs> oh, definitely, it's true. <laughs> it's true. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a it, there there is much yearning and loneliness, even though the cover is this beautiful, you know, like sort of marigold. Uh, you know, which is which is so bright. So um so so don't be uh fooled by the, the cheerful <laughs> yellow flower, right? <laughs> no. There's lots of um weighty uh matters uh within the, the jacket, uh within the book pages. Um so Prita, what did you when you like way back <laughs> in nineteen ninety nine when you were starting this, um, when you were you know, in school for something else and yeah. you're just writing whenever you could. Um, w- what came to you first? Was it like an, an image or was it some idea of like a, a plot line or a yeah. character? What? It was two different things, actually. One was um, that I had always wanted to write about servants. And I had written a couple of short stories and even at one point had an idea of writing a play about a servant. I was just really, really fascinated and, and um yeah, just really, why? Do you know uh, why? Like by the place of servants in in Malaysian society, I guess in Asian society in general. Because on the one hand, Malaysia, if you went there as an outsider, it would strike you as a completely, you know, it's very developed, it's very westernized, it's an affluent, in many ways, a progressive society. In other ways, not so much. But um, <laughs> you, so so there's on the one hand this very westernized way of living and on the other hand the treatment of servants is this remnant of, of feudalism really like a lot of people that the treatment of the servant in my novel is not atypical in fact there are many many people that that we knew personally that treated their servants much much worse than the family in my novel so i, I just thought it was so do you mean for the, the present day the way that people uh you know on the one hand live these um very you know normal um liberal lives and on the other hand um, have 
glorified slaves in their home and how the way that they justify it to themselves, the way that they manage to go through their lives without ever really questioning it or without seeming to question it. I thought that was fascinating, and I wanted to kind of get to the heart of that. Um, and the other thing that, that um, had come to me in the very beginning was the image of the two siblings and kind of... And that was a much more blurry image, just of one sibling left behind and one sibling far away in America. And I didn't know if these were going to be the same book or the same project at all, but I kind of just started writing, and, and I didn't know how I was going to tie them together or if I was going to tie them together. But eventually, the, actually pretty early on in the process, as I started writing the, the links, the parallels between these two characters, the, the older sister and the servant, um, rose to the surface, and the links between the characters kind of just made themselves. So, um, yeah. So, so, it, so it was developing organically then. And, and what, um, how, with the, the structure of the book is unusual too. It's not as if you're, you're telling it in a straight chronology. Of, no. How how did you make that decision with with the time moving time? Yeah. Around? Well, the structure of the book it's more or less backwards. There's some there there are a couple of chapters that are interspersed in there that aren't strictly backwards, but the main narrative of the story is told backwards. Um, and I did that because you know, of course, when I first started writing it, I was writing it chronologically forwards, like mm-hmm. you know the the norm, <laughs> the <laughs> default. Um, right. But I found myself always flashing forward to what happened in the end, or what, you know, the, the things that I, that I, that I thought would happen in the end. Actually, many, many of those things are still in the book. So, so um, I, I, wa- I just wanted the reader to know what would happen in the end because I wanted them to know the consequences of everything that was happening in the novel. Because to me, the book was not about what happened, but about why it happened. And so I just kept flashing forward. And at some point, I just had this, um, you know, moment of insight where I thought instead of just flashing forward so many times and it just began to seem, you know, heavy-handed and, and clumsy and, and kind of, yeah, just ham-fisted. And instead of doing this, why don't I just, if I want them to know what happens at the end, why don't I just tell them the end and then move backwards from there? Yeah, um, so, but, I, so, but you don't, so I did that. But and, you don't reveal everything, and, though, Prita, right? When you're saying it, it almost sounds like, because you, you, you kind of have, like, the what actually is happening at the very, like, the last moment, but the the um there's secrets that are are within the book right like you don't know what right what yeah. was the consequence not even everything leading up to it but like the the like cuz so it's not it's fair to say that um the servant girl uh Shalam she she had to she had to was being banished from the house in yes. shame yeah. right so that doesn't give anything away like you said no. cuz it's at the beginning right yeah <laughs> um, yeah um well was so that's really kind of wonderful and when you were going through was it was that something difficult to manage when you were um or 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 is it like you said it was actually something that it was far more difficult to resist um it was actually a bit difficult to manage because by the time i realized that i needed to tell the story backwards i'd actually written a lot of it so i needed to go back and <laughs> rewrite everything because you know that the order in which you tell the story matters a lot um in you know to the to the way you tell it so so for example you know in in a particular chapter i would have been referring to things that came before, but now that I'd reversed the order of the book, they were going to come after. <laughs> right. <laughs> so when I, you know, in the in those two years that I was in Michigan, I, I know when we would talk about my novel, I, I think, you know, I would always talk about revising it or rewriting, and that was a lot of what I was doing, is that, you know, I had realized I needed to use the structure, and I needed to basically rewrite the whole thing. Um, 
with the new structure. Yes. And was it possible? Did you feel like when you could you catch everything? Did you feel like pretty confident as you went through the different the chapters, which are so which have such great chapter titles, by the way, (laughs) Um, (laughs) after great expectations? That's a great one. so you you feel like you kind of went through there and 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 in the rewriting of it because it was because um, there's such beautiful language too. Um, with yeah, as far as so in terms of rewriting it um, and being, I mean, you know, obviously when you change the order and there's so many things structurally to to keep track of. I I did the best job I could with that with that draft and then once I um, sold the book and had an editor, like they that was a lot of what we did too was to think about you know, um, pacing and also consistency. Like you couldn't, you know, if I'd accidentally mentioned something that, that in the new structure of the book, the reader wouldn't know about yet. Um, you know, so so a lot of that, you know, the, the editor and later on the manuscript editor, um, helped me with that. Um, which is kind of catching little, little inconsistencies and mistakes and, errors continuity errors but um because it's so amazing there's so many characters well you know what now we've been talking about it would would you mind reading us a couple like um a little a section of it prita so we could so people can hear sure of course um let me just introduce uh, the the section i'm going to read briefly because um it's not from the beginning of the book in fact it's it's from almost the end um of course one of the benefits of the structure is that i can read from almost the end without giving too much away um Right. So, it's, it's, I don't know, our audience has probably figured out by this point that the book is about a family with a servant girl, girl Chalam. And uh, the chapter I'm going to read from is from the is from right after she arrives at the family home. And just kind of the this is the neighbor's reactions to her and what people are saying about her. So in the first chapter, the, sorry, the first paragraph that I'll read, you, you'll hear two, about two neighbors, and then the others are all family members. You, I think you'll be able to figure it out. Okay. Um, on Tillam's first full day, Mrs. Balakishtan strolls across the street to wonder aloud about her narrow hips, flat chest, and tiny hands. On her second, Cookie Rookie comes a-calling for the same purpose. Too, too sorry I feel for her, auntie, she says to Amma. I myself was forced to work in other people's houses at that age, you know. Twelve, thirteen years old, I was washing bedsheets and big, big pails of clothes with my hands. That must have been in a different lifetime from the one in which her father sent her to a boarding school in England, Suresh said after she's left. Because it simply won't do for lawyer Rajasekharan and family to be caught employing a child laborer, Amma sits Chellum down at the Formica table for a thorough interrogation. No birth certificate, madam, Chellum says over and over. In my house, we got no birthday, birthday, all that. And try as Amma might to intimidate her into a confession with knowing looks and insinuations. Chalam can only say that she's 17, give or take a few months. Her growth might have been stunted by malnutrition, Amma concludes. When she gives Chalam Appa's like-new only courthouse shirts, she advises her to pin up the sleeves. Or you can cut and sew them, Amma says. Then they won't be forever getting wet and dirty when you do your work, and that way they'll last longer also. Perhaps it's Chalam's youth that arouses some didactic impulse in Amma. Or perhaps it's the subtle childlike quality of her manners and movements. The way she wrinkles her nose to laugh at Suresh's rudest jokes. The way she turns her feet in and fidgets whenever she stands before Amma, shifting her weight from one foot to the other and back again, scratching her calves with her toenails as if invisible flies were bothering her. The way she sticks 
her tongue out of one corner of her mouth when applying herself to a tricky task. Whatever the reason, Amma brims with this teacher man to fishing in Chillum's early days. When she catches the girl squinting at the dining room clock from one foot away, she tells her, Your eyesight is something you must take care of. If you're careful with your money and save up properly, you can go for an eye exam and get spectacles. Amma finds Chillum an empty quality street tin to use as a piggy bank. Here, she says, Every month put your money in this. Don't simply, simply waste it on magazines and kachang puteh. Taking the tin firmly in both hands, Chillam runs up to her room and puts it under her bed. She has 50 sen left over from the money Mrs. Drivedi gave her to take the bus to the big house. Instead of opening her spectacles account with this, she decides to spend it on a long-term investment for more efficient account keeping. She purchases a pocket-sized notebook from the corner shop. And on the first page, she makes two columns, marking one, Master Gave, and the other, Things I Bought, in her beetling Tamil characters. Then she lists the months in a third column next to the first, one through twelve, deciding one year is good enough to start with. And together, but separately, she and Amma pat themselves on the back, Amma for her invaluable contribution to Chillam's moral education, and Chillam for the good sense apparent in the very preparation of this notebook. She will do good work. She will never grumble back when the old lady grumbles at her. She will be so impressive that they will raise her pay after the first few months. Okay, I think I'll stop there, T. Oh, Preeta, thank you. That's great. Well, we'll you know what? We'll take a short break, and then we'll come back, and, and okay. we'll, we'll talk a bit. Thank you for reading. That was Preeta Samarasan uh, reading from her debut novel, Evening is the Whole Day. We'll be right back. I hear the drizzle of the rain Like a memory it falls Soft and warm continuing Tapping on my roof and walls And from the shelter of my mind through the window of my eyes, I gaze beyond the rain drenched Welcome back. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on Living Writers, Preeta Samarasan with her novel, Evening is the Whole Day. Um, Preeta, right before the break, you, you read a passage uh, for us about Chellum, the servant girl's uh, arrival to the house. Thank you so much for reading. <laughs> Thank you. Um, that was, it was such, it was a great, almost, I think you could open the book anywhere, really, and, um, you know, point to a paragraph and see this rich development of character. <laughs> And layers um, that you give of these really fine details that shows such attention. Um, It was wonderful because this was like a a way of giving us the characterization of of Chellum uh, down to the part where she puts her tongue out of the corner of her mouth uh, when she's doing difficult tasks. Really, really lovely. Is that um, is is that something that? the characters, is this like one of the parts, you know, when you're writing through something, there's things that just come perhaps more 
easily than others. And sometimes it's not always apparent as a reader what what the writers. Um, but it seems like you have a, a, a just a gift of creating um, these characters, <laughs> <laughs> and many of them. I might I might I might add. There's many many wonderful characters created in this novel. Um, is that? Do you feel like that's something that you have a like? Uh, it comes to you. Uh, I, I I don't know. I mean, it's it's difficult, you know, to to ask. Um, at least for, I, I guess it's difficult for me to to answer the question. Which parts of it were easy because a lot of it felt so difficult at the time that I was doing it. But um, I guess you know it's it's all relative. And now that you mention it, um, you know, certain characters. One of the I, I guess it is really. The part that's a joy, because so much of writing is not the kind of spontaneous joy that maybe non-writers would imagine it to be. Um, so much of it is difficult and frustrating, but there are some parts that, that, that are kind of joyful to work on. And the part that is, for me, is often dialogue. Um, I really... And there isn't a whole lot of dialogue in this book, but the parts that, you know, that what there is came, I guess, relatively easily and was easy to easy to write. It just kind of flows because I find myself thinking in that character's voice. So that's the aspect of character, I guess, that comes easily. Yes. Um, and maybe the internal monologue or the, or the stuff that is more introspective is not quite as easy as the dialogue and the stuff you point out, like the little gestures and the little bodily movements, I guess, that I, that I do imagine more easily. Yeah. Yes. I, it's great that you mentioned the dialogue because you're it's kind of amazing what you're doing because I guess let's talk a little bit about the setting for the book, Malaysia. Um, just by saying that you're going to have, um, and it's, it's 70, 1979 to 1980, as you mentioned before, Prita, yes. um, it, you have, um, Malay, uh, the Malay population, uh, and then you have, uh, Chinese and yes. Indian immigrants, right. And, and they're all, um, this surfacing in your book. So you're sort of juggling, you're, you are juggling all of these, um, different voices and, and, and speech patterns and language actually. Yeah. Yeah. To say to say more about that, I, I mean, yes, there is a lot of. But I think for for someone who has lived in Malaysia, it probably would come pretty easily. And I think you know, linguists, if I'm not mistaken, the the term linguists use for this kind of, you know, you're speaking the same language. Basically, it's always English or some version of English. At least in the context of my book, it mostly is. I use some some phrases in foreign languages, but but a lot of it is English, but in in a, a different kind of English each time. And so. Malaysians will often, you know, like Indian Malaysians have their own version of English, and then Malays have their own, and Chinese have their own, and there's some overlap. There's large amounts of overlap, in fact, but, but there's some, I think linguists call that kind of different making, switching from one to the other. I think they call it code switching, when you are speaking the same language, but you immediately, without thinking about it, you change the kind of, so some of your vocabulary or, and your diction, yes, uh, depending on who whom you're talking to. Um, and so since we do that quite naturally, you know, in person, it comes it easily also when I'm, when I'm writing. It's not, that part of it wasn't, wasn't so much of a struggle. A, st a stretch. Right. Right. Well, so, so writing about Malaysia too, do you also feel, um, cause I can't say I've read another, um, I mean, not that I'm, I've read all the books in the world, <laughs> but, um, your book is the first book I've read set in Malaysia. Do you, do you feel some, some weight when you're writing uh, a novel of this scope um, and sort of choosing these like historical moments where there's like uh, the birth of a nation as well as this, 
this, the growth and, and almost fall of a family, um, considering like the historical elements in, in the setting, um, I mean, you have this this place like how because who you're going to be touring in Malaysia, but this book was released first here in the states. Um, so yeah. how do you balance it was released, that? Yeah, in the in the U.S. and the and the U.K. Oh, simultaneously, it was released in the um, U.S. and the U.K. Um, it was released in the U.S. first, and then a month after in the U.K. So May in the U.S. and then June in the U.K. And, and um, so when you're writing for people who might not be familiar with Malaysia um, and that there are these um, different groups living there coexisting and the, and the, the you know, the political struggles. Um, yeah. So how was that? How what were the considerations? I guess, you know, there, there weren't a whole lot of considerations, <laughs> to be honest. And, and the, the criticism, I mean, yes, most of the reviews so far have been pretty positive. But the little bit of criticism that I have got is from people who are not used to that or kind of not prepared for the challenge of reading the book because it's really not i mean in some ways i just kind of wrote it for a malaysian audience and um i just figure the the it's not that i want to shut out the other audiences it's not that i want to exclude anyone but i think the the kind of audience all around the world that i really targeted was the kind of audience who would like the fact that i had written it for a malaysian audience does that make sense yes it does um, yes yeah yeah so i didn't you know i didn't really think about explaining anything i didn't think about like defining you know for like quote unquote foreign terms i didn't think about um you know part and stuff that would make it more attractive or, or less attractive to a foreign audience. I just kind of told the story as I, as I would tell it almost to a Malaysian audience. And, and I think that um, <clears throat> it's been out now in, in Malaysia for, um, I guess, about a month. And judging from the reviews there, I, I think that people really are, that, you know, Malaysian readers really pick up on that, that they really do get the sense that, it's, that it was written for them and that I'm not pandering to a Western audience. In terms of, but, but you know, your, your question is bigger than that. You talked about, like, how do I get across, like, the political complexity of it and, and all of that. But I think, I guess the short answer to that would be that I just, you know, I just tried to tell my story and a lot of my story. I think, I think that you cannot talk about Malaysia. You cannot write about Malaysia without kind of invoking all of that complexity without, for example, talking about race. Yes. I mean, race and class are very, very huge issues in Malaysia. And therefore, you know, when you tell a story that's set in Malaysia, if you're going to tell it, if you're going to tell the truth and if you're going to tell it in a way that's, you know, true to the place, those issues will come up. And yes. so the audience, you know, where whoever is reading it will get a sense um, of, of the issues without yeah. my having to say, without my having to kind of step back and explain. They'll <laughs> kind of pick up on that. Yes, <laughs> That's it, my hope, at least. No, and I, it does. And, 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 this, and it completely works like that, Preeta, because there's like, I can think of an example, um, uh, maybe midway through the book where you have... Um, you have Uma, uh, the 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 eldest daughter, uh, who you've mentioned uh, already, and then her mother Ama going on a train ride yeah. to visit Ama's sister, and and a man in the train, a Malay man, uh, speaks to. Uma directly and there's this moment where he's saying well shame that you don't know um, you can't read that it says the you know Malay land train <laughs> um, yeah. and shame on your parents for raising you here in this country and you don't you right would you that felt to me like an example of um, where we could understand what was happening but it wasn't didactic or or like this is a political moment in the book you know yes yeah yeah yeah, um, exactly. I mean, I just, 
put, you know, that the whole episode of May 13th, 1969, it's kind of um, the, the race riots. It's something that isn't hugely talked about still, even now, 40 years later, is not talked about a whole lot in, in Malaysia. So I um, definitely wanted, it for, almost from the beginning of the book, definitely wanted to kind of put my characters in the, in the middle of that um, to, to... And again, it wasn't so much to to, you know, expose the rest of the world to it, but it was kind of to... Um, there was a feeling that we need to we need to talk about this, like to generate yes. a conversation about it, to to put, um, to kind of, you know, it's it's difficult to explain because I also don't want to. I don't believe that uh, that fiction should be just about the issues. Like I didn't make a list of causes that I wanted to <laughs> to address in the book and then address them. But I did. I guess yeah, I did want to. That that felt like such a huge moment in our country's history that I couldn't leave it out. Like to to write to write a novel about race in Malaysia. You know, in a, in a way, my novel is about race. Um, to write a novel about that and not bring up not have 1969 in there would have felt like an omission. Would would have been false, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, so when you were writing through this, it was you were you were looking for basically um, you were imagining this this family's life, and did it keep growing outward from this? Because you said it started with siblings. So that was Uma, and then her younger sister Asha. Yes. And, yeah. Because um, so, there's many yeah, generations. I mean, I imagined them, and then obviously they had to have parents. <laughs> And uh, and grandparents are you can kind of go back through several layers of 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 family history as well. Um, right, Prita, you have like did you did you draw out uh, a sort of uh, I'm like what I, it actually reminded me of uh, the 100 years of solitude um, that that there were so many branches and 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 layers to the family is is that something that you charted out for yourself as well or was it just completely obvious to you as you were creating these stories hmm okay well I I think that we're gonna go to a short break because I might have lost Prita there for a moment because remember everyone we're, we're talking to France here <laughs> and so um, we're gonna take a short break and we'll be right back and hopefully we'll have Prita Samarasan back on the line with her debut novel which is wonderful evening is the whole day I'm T Hetzel we'll be back When streams are ripe and swelled with rain May she will stay Resting in my arms again Restless walk, she'll prowl the night. July, she will fly and give no warning. 
to her flight August Die she must The autumn winds blow Chilly and cold September I'll remember A love once new has now grown old Hi, you're listening to Hi. Living Writers and Preta's back. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, it's <laughs> Not at all. It was pretty funny because I did. I was thinking. I think I've lost Prita, but I'm gonna keep talking in case she can hear the. <laughs> I could hear you actually. Yes, I could hear you. And if you want me to, I can. I can go back to the question you were asking about how I kept track of the. Well, if you think it's how they all sort of showed up. Sure, um, if you think it's but worth anyway, it. You were making this comparison to 100 Years of Solitude, which I think I, I don't know. I feel like that book is a lot more. Um, crowded with characters and maybe some, you know, the, the similarity in their names. And I f- felt that it was a lot more dense, like consciously, like deliberately, um, a kind of deliberate confusion that, that I didn't think, I don't think my book is quite that no, um, no, no, <laughs> complex. I, but, but as far as the, yeah, like I was saying, you know, they, was, they started with these siblings and then they needed parents. And one other character that showed up very, very early was the grandmother, because I did have this idea very early on that the servant girl was going to be there to look after an elderly person. Yes. Yeah, that would make sense, wouldn't it? Yes. And and so what what are some of the, the influences then that you feel like might be from um, if it wasn't a hundred years of solitude, do you have any that you sort of look to, Prita? Because I, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I don't want to. You know, I, I do love that book very much. I've just never thought of it as a conscious influence. So if you see that in there, you no. know, I'd be very, yeah, I'm definitely very flattered. But um, because I love the book, but as far as influences that I thought about, um, um, Bleak House by Charles Dickens Charles was a Dickens. big one. Yes, yes. Um, and Dickens in general, I guess I just really love that kind of big 19th century, um, very talkative, wordy narrator. <laughs> yes. Um, and which, then the other book that do, was you... a huge influence, um, or uh, two other books actually. One is um, Waterland by Graham Swift and the epigraph, one of the epigraphs. Yes. The book is taken from that book, um, this idea of history being a backwards movement and that history is just our... Uh, is just humanity's attempt to to ask why, why, why. Um, That's wonderful. And I, yeah, so I took um, you know some elements of the narrator's voice, but also that that idea from from Waterland. And then the third book that must be mentioned is um, Midnight's Children by Salman Rushdie, which is a, again an attempt to write the history of a of a country in a, you know using using a fictional um, construct and and to and. Uh, you know, without trying to sound too, too conceited or, or ambitious, I, I do. I'm trying to do some of that with this book. So yes, to kind of tell the national story. So yes, and 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 you and you do it. And I I wonder it will be so interesting when you you do go later this year or into the next um, when you go to Malaysia. Um, yes, on the the tour because that would be wonderful to to know some of the conversations. That you have there with yes, your readers. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to it too. 
<laughs> it seems like on the, the tour here, Prita, you, you seem to do a lot of joint readings um, with other uh, like Asian writers. Is that fair to say? Are those people that you had read and and was that uh-uh, no i did two or? two, two okay. of them and uh one was at the asian american writers workshop in new york and i think they you know i, I didn't know the other writer it was jen suk fong lee and mm-hmm. she's written a book called the end of east and it was just it was the aww that that scheduled us for the same night I see. um and i think it was just a matter of our schedules matching up and, <laughs> and how about how about in harvard too because it seemed like there you had a political like you had a conversation about political identity yes. as well and yes the other one I did was with um, uh, Vivi Ganeshanandan, who's written a book called Love Marriage, and it's set in Sri Lanka, and uh, partly, actually, no, it's set, uh, a lot of it is set in Toronto, and partly in Sri Lanka. Um, But um, it's about um, uh, well, it's about Sri Lanka, it's about the, the conflict there, and it addresses a lot of the the political issues that um, are that have you know played a part in the Sri Lankan conflict, and so what I think the reason so so the the woman who organized that event at the Harvard Bookstore was it brought both of these books together because actually they're both about um, Tamil speaking families. Um, oh, I see. Uh, okay. One in Sri Lanka and one in um, Malaysia. So that was kind of the common thread. And then, uh, you know, identity in that sense, so there's a shared identity. But I think in other ways, they're very different books because the situation of Tamils in Malaysia, you know, they're, they're quite different. There's very little um, commonality there. So. Yeah, yes. Oh, it must be something else, though, to have, like, kind of be expected to speak about political identity when you're, what you are trying to do also is write the you know, a fictional <laughs> yes. history. Yeah, it and, is. And, and that's something that I think a lot of writers who are not, um, you know, I guess minority writers who have talked about just that this idea that you, if you're not um, white, male, American, or British, that you're somehow expected to represent um, your country. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. I, Yes, that's that doesn't seem quite fair, does it? But maybe yeah. it isn't. But it's such a common phenomenon that you know. On the one hand, I was uh, was almost expecting it. Then when it happened, I was completely outraged by it. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, by the people who say, uh, and the other the, the other woman who was there, uh, Vivi Ganeshan, and then has got a lot of this as well because the Sri Lankan conflict is such an explosive issue that she's gotten this from a lot of her critics as well. You know, people saying, "Well, you didn't represent this side of the story," or in my case, you know, they say, "Oh, well." Your characters are all mostly all Indian, and you don't have any, you know, major Chinese or Malay characters. Or you didn't really talk about this part of, you know, Indian life in Malaysia or that part. Or you really didn't address this issue. And I'm like, listen, you know. it's one book yeah. too. I mean, who's to know what you're going to do next? But you're not supposed to write about every, you know, you'd still be writing it, right? I know, Prita? If you extrapolate, you know, and you take the, you know, you you ask the 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 equivalent question of like Ian McEwan or Philip Roth, you'll see how ridiculous it is. Exactly. Um, Exactly. Yeah. Well, were, when you, in the writing of this novel, Prito, was there like a moment where you were actually like fully shocked by something that happened within it, like some sort of like unexpected um, surprise um, that came from it? <laughs> I have to say that, that I, I kind of lean. I'm. <laughs> I always kind of question. I'm always skeptical about the idea that that um, that our characters 
do things that we don't expect because I'm not sure. I mean, maybe maybe I just use different words to talk about it. But often when people say that, I think, well, no, they didn't because you made them do that. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't surprise you because you made the whole thing up. And, you, and, and maybe maybe I do know what they mean. Maybe sometimes. You know, there, of course, there were times when I thought, okay, this is what I'm going to do, and then I would write it, and it wouldn't work. And it was clear that it just felt very contrived, and it was not, it was just not, yeah, not, not organic to the story, and so I would have to rewrite it. So I, I actually, I'm not sure that I can talk about those sections without giving away too much. Oh, okay, okay, no, plot, no. Because a lot of them have to do, but I can just sort of abstractly say that a lot of them have to, you know, a lot of them happen towards the end of the book as things are, as you are kind of getting to the real heart of what happened in this family. Um, and I think a lot of times I had made I had made up causes in my head that I would then write out, and then that it would just, yeah, it wouldn't work. It would just seem so either melodramatic or, or um, just, yeah, not true to the characters by that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, well, yes. Well, people will have to pick up Evening is the Whole Day. Right, if, if, you know, and, and then they can read it, and then they can, <laughs> and then they can ask me which parts surprise. <laughs> exactly, or they it won't sound so abstract to them at that point, right? Well, well, so um, so you're in France, Prita, and what are what are your what are you working on right now? Um, are are you writing every day, or are you uh, like, uh, a little? Rip- yes, I mean, I try to do something every day. It's not always. Um, it's not always something great and it's not always a lot, but I try to do something every day. And at the moment, I, I am uh, theoretically working on another novel, but I haven't, like, I um, had been working on it since last year and then I took a break for the book tour. And because of, because there's so much travel that I'm doing this year and it's kind of these, these constant interruptions, but at least I, my, for me, I don't, find them conducive to working on a larger project, to working on a long project, because I feel I need a long stretch of uninterrupted time to work on a novel. So I've um, taken a short break from the novel, and I'm working mostly on short stories and essays at the moment. Oh, that sounds that and, sounds good. Are any of yeah. them food-related? Any of them food-related? Um, actually, no, not yet, although I, I haven't ruled out the possibility of writing something <laughs> food-related. Yeah. I only ask you that, Prita, because I remember at one point you were um, every day checking certain food blogs. I oh, think yes. I remember. I love food. I'm obsessed with it. And it actually <laughs> is, um, it's like, it's Malaysia's national obsession. <laughs> We're a very, very food-obsessed country. And it's the one thing that, despite all of the political tensions and all of the, um, you know, very controversial issues that people don't like to talk about. Food is always a subject that everyone feels very passionately about, so it's not even small talk. It's not superficial. <laughs> um, it's it's passionate, and yet everyone can talk about it. And and so it's almost like cross-cultural eating. Like, even yeah. if you feel like you still have vestiges of these different ideas about different people, you might still enjoy what their national cuisine is or the yeah, ethnic exactly. cuisine. Yeah, exactly. And in fact, there's a lot of fusion. I mean, in as much as you, you can see in my book how separate in some ways the races are. Like, you know, the fact that this family doesn't really... I mean, they have neighbors of other races, but they don't really... You know, they're not really friends with them. And that there's some of this kind of racial... Um, uh, maybe segregation implies that that it's that they're being kept apart by external forces, but really it's that you know the races don't mix as much as you might expect in a country like that. Um, so so in the, on the one hand they're so separate, but but food is one place where they haven't been separate, where there's been a lot of fusion, and I think there there are dishes that 
don't exist, you, you know, say in India or in China, the places where these people have come from. Um, you don't have exactly what you what the Indians and the Chinese in Malaysia are, are eating. So, but and now you have them in Malaysia. These dishes, yes, exactly. See, that's that's wonderful. Because yeah. <laughs> um, I I feel like in in part of the story again to to reference that time when Ama went to visit her her sister and it was like the the crucial moment of elections and they're saying there's going to be riots and 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 the, it was funny because um, her sister's husband came home and said you know we must stay in and was very, um, you know, of the moment and and concerned and and thinking this things could be very bad. And yet the sisters kept talking like, well, I'm not going to make anything. You might as well go get something from the Chinese, you know, stall down the road. And he... So it's this wonderful moment where they're saying, no, these are the, the people who we're all going to be at odds against each other tomorrow. <laughs> no one's going to be at a stall to give you lunch or dinner. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's wonderful. Well, what um, what what other um, do you have other projects that you're working on right now, Prita? Not just not just the writing ones. Um, um. Not really. <laughs> well, you know what? It's living writers. It's not. It's not like living sports enthusiasts. It's not like you should have like you know your current sport hobby to to trot out I don't for really us. I do a whole lot. I mean, um, I, I cook a lot, I guess, and I write, and then um, I do, as you know, as you mentioned already, spend an enormous amount of time on the internet. <laughs> well, you have lots of people all over the world. It seems like to keep up with at this point. Yeah, I mean, that's part of it. Yeah. 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 So, oh, well, it's been so wonderful talking with you today, Preeta. I've, I've loved Likewise. it. Likewise. It's been really it. fun. And, <laughs> Thank and, you so much for having me. And if you don't mind staying on the line for a moment, um, I, I'm just, we'll sign off on the radio and um, okay. I'd love to say goodbye. Okay. Well, okay, um, yeah. so thank you to Preeta Samarasan um, for talking to us today. Uh, her novel, her debut novel, Evening is the Whole Day, um, a wonderful book. Um, thanks again to Alex Sergey for engineering and... Uh, my name is T. Hetzel. Until next time. Thank you so much, T. A winter's day In a deep and dark December From my window to the streets below On a freshly fallen silent shroud of snow I am a rock, I am an island I've built walls A fortress deep and mighty Friendship causes pain It's laughter and it's loving I disdain
slumber of feelings that have died. If I never loved, I never would have cried. Feels no pain, and an island never cries. This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, July 16, 2008, from Pacifica Station KPFK in LA. I'm out abogado. On today's newscast, we'll hear about McCain and Obama's positions on foreign policy. We'll go to Beirut to hear about the Lebanese-Israeli prisoner exchange. And we'll hear from the attorney representing the only so-called enemy combatant about a new ruling that allows him to challenge his detention. I'm Shannon Young with the headlines. NATO forces have abandoned a newly established outpost near the village of Wanat in eastern Afghanistan after it was overrun by Taliban militants earlier this week. Taliban forces killed nine U.S. soldiers in an ambush of the station on Sunday in what was the deadliest single incident for U.S. troops since 2005. NATO says that despite the pullback, international and Afghan forces will continue to patrol the area, which lies in a mountainous region near the border with Pakistan. The Sudanese parliament has passed a resolution to not cooperate with the International Criminal Court investigation of Sudanese President Omar Hassan Ahmad al-Bashir. The court's chief prosecutor on Monday requested an arrest warrant for al-Bashir to stand trial on charges of genocide, war crimes and crimes against humanity in Darfur. The United Nations